Fucking Jana's mom gave it a go. Gave this podcast a go. Oh, yeah. 65-year-old woman, 68-year-old woman gave it a go. Couldn't finish it. Why? Too much swearing. Good for her. She gave it it an old college try. Which I thought was the sweetest thing. Episode 7. 7? Take 2. Should I tell them? Yeah, it's not funny. May as well. I know it's not. Well, I mean... So we can start off by talking about how I didn't find it funny and how it affected me. Because it affected me far more than I had certainly wanted. Yeah. But please tell the story. Yeah, well, I don't want to dwell on it. I just want to... Right. Like, okay, you know, agreed. We're just being transparent in the sense that we already recorded a goddamn episode 7, only to discover that the record button has, had not been pressed... And we didn't discover it, unfortunately, until the episode was over. Which, you're not the only one that took it harder than you thought you would. Fair enough. And I was empathetic to that, but I struggled. Yeah. I I didn't, no, I was empathetic to it. And I was not angry at you. Because it was a fuck. it's not like you fucking did it on purpose, Right. right? So it was like, right, fucking Carl. But it wasn't an anger. It was just like, damn it. Yeah, right? oh, I know. But then it turned into, it was, like, I don't want to talk shit about the previous podcast, but mm-hmm. no other time that we had done this that I've been that excited or interested yeah, or invested. I know. I know. And, and then, I think that's what made me feel even worse about right. it, is that I could tell that you sort of poured your heart out yeah. during it. Yeah. And we got into this just, like, amazing discussion about the whole subject. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, is about diabetes. It is. The name of the episode is Sugarfoot. And which, this... by the way, you never got into right. what that meant. So, Sugarfoot... Last time. Sugarfoot is a, a colloquial name for diabetes in the South, um, I think predominantly by African Americans. Because it's been around forever... They just came up with a way cooler name than white people did. We called it mm-hmm. diabetes. They call it sugarfoot. Because diabetes, poor diabetes management for prolonged periods of time causes neuropathy, which is the death of, ultimately, the death of nerve endings. And uh, one of the more susceptible places are on your extremities for obvious reasons. So, this episode's about diabetes, this episode is all about Adam. And I wanted to talk about it for a few reasons. Um, but the main one is, is because nobody knows what the fuck this disease is. Everybody knows someone who has it. Everybody has an idea of what it is. Yeah, that's about it. But most of them... Most of the things that you know about diabetes are wrong or... Anecdotal. Certainly anecdotal. And definitely, of course, because no one... Why would you know? Um, But it's missing a lot of context and certainly a lot of depth, which is or is not important. I don't know. Again, this episode's about me, so I don't give a fuck if you care about this or not. (laughs) (laughs) So what inspired this was really years of 
The same thing happening over and over and over again. And recently, my friend Roz was... I had posted some fucking stupid meme on Facebook about diabetes. And it was about making fun of you normies who tell diabetics to take their insulin when they have a low blood sugar. Um, Every diabetic ever has been told that, or has had someone ask them if they need their insulin when they say they have a low blood sugar. And it's just, no. (laughs) The answer is no. And Roz had asked me why. Why is that a meme? Like, why, why is that a thing? So, I... Wrote I, I wrote quite a bit, more than um, you usually reply to somebody on Facebook. And it made me go, why don't I talk about it? Because it was, it was while we were doing this podcast, so I was like, well, why not? The last year of my life has been such a huge change with diabetes, mostly my relationship with it. Very much so how I manage it, but my relationship with the disease has changed um, drastically. And we'll get there um, as to what all that is. But I wanted to give some learning as to what it is, why it is, and to be sure, like it, it's about my story. So, what is diabetes? There are two types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. Type 2 is the diabetes you get when you're fat. That's a very unfair thing to say, but all type 1 diabetics will laugh at that joke because we all know it's true. Either you're fat or you're pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately what it is, is your pancreas on a normal person produces insulin when you ingest food. In fact, your pancreas excretes insulin when you think about food in preparation to dealing with it. Insulin's job is to pull glucose out of your blood and provide it to your organs or your cells. So that's its job. A type 2 diabetic, their pancreas can't keep up with the volume of body. Now I say that again, it's not definitive. There are other reasons why type 2 exists, but... Um, that's, that's common. When people say that they're borderline diabetic or they're pre-diabetic, they're talking about type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Now, type 1 diabetes is that the pancreas creates no insulin at all. So, insulin has to be injected to, to facilitate that requirement because without insulin you die. Um, As everybody who graduated high school will know, cells require sugar to go. And if they don't, you don't. Yeah, so that's the difference. They're They're two similar diseases, but very, very different. Does the the pancreas just suddenly stop, or does it kind of like slowly phase into... Nothingness. So, <clears throat> it, it phases into nothingness, um, and that's what's called the honeymoon period. And it's a very dangerous period for a diabetic, because your pancreas will sometimes shoot out insulin, 
or not, or sometimes not enough. And it's all that time you're still injecting insulin. So it's really easy to get too much. But what kicks off diabetes often is a trauma to the body or the immune system. I guess that's redundant, but it is a significant act by the immune system that goes batshit and then attacks the pancreas, the islet cells that exist inside of the pancreas, which make insulin. So that happens like, and then it begins. But then the process of your, of the attack on your pancreas is progressive as the islet cells are destroyed by your immune system. So yeah, the honeymoon period, a very confusing, terrifying, and, uh, shitty space because you can just you slowly see what your life's going to be like forever it wasn't yeah it wasn't a lot of fun it was weird and uh i spend a lot of time on reddit talking to or reading and contributing talking to diabetics on a on a subreddit there and a lot of questions are about the honeymoon phase how to deal with it, how long does it last, what is it. There's a million questions by people who haven't got adequate um, help for this disease. So, there are two things that happen that are common side effects to diabetes, like uh, um, immediate side effects. I'll talk about the long-term side effects uh, eventually, but there's a low blood sugar, and a high blood sugar, a hyperglycemia, and a hypoglycemia. Hypo being uh, low blood sugar, hyper being a high blood sugar. As I said, insulin takes glucose from your blood, takes it to cells. Okay. If there is too much insulin in your body, your blood has not enough sugar to sustain life. So it's then classified as a low blood sugar. A high blood sugar is obviously the opposite of that, where too much sugar is in your blood, not enough insulin. Ultimately, it's not enough insulin. Um, it can also uh, also be not enough activity, but ultimately, it's not enough insulin. You could be, you could be, and there are people in vegetative states that just are diabetics that just take insulin to to survive, but. They live on IV juice. Anyway, so those two things. Now, a low blood sugar is the one where you have to worry about as a normal person who works in an office with a diabetic or your aunt has it or whatever. Those are the ones you worry about. It. Those are the ones you already sort of know about. And a low blood sugar happens when too much insulin is in the body because either the diabetic has injected too much insulin or hasn't eaten enough, or both. Or has used up a large amount of energy through exercise. And now you don't have enough. Symptoms, or the signs of a low blood sugar, are things like shakiness, irritability, um, hunger, sweats, chills. 
I often, well, every time I start a new job, I tell everybody in the office that I'm a diabetic. And I am, I'm generally a pretty crabby, shitty person to work with. That's not true, but I'm, I'm loud and I'm just who I am anyway. And I tell them that if there's ever a time where I am out of nowhere really aggressive, not like I'm going to punch you in the face aggressive, but like snappy or really rude, ask me if I need something to eat because that that is quite common to have a low blood sugar. Is it possible that people exhibit those symptoms if they're like pre-diabetic and they're and they've got low blood sugar? Absolutely. Oh wow. Yeah man. Hypoglycemia can happen to anybody. Right. It can happen to anybody, but yeah, definitely. Like if I got I've gone a lot of hours between something to eat, mm-hmm. that could be why I suddenly get kinda Yeah. Snappy. Sure. There is hangry as, as well, right? Right. Like, um, but that... Which is kind of a joke, but it's not. But it's... Oh, it's definitely not. I have a fucking three and a half year old. It is not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, don't, I don't know what the correlation between the two are. Like, I don't know if hangry is brought on by the onset of a hypoglycemic uh, episode. Mm. But they can happen. A big one is also confusion. Um... And I forgot that. Maybe my, maybe my blood sugar is low. Um, but <laughs> is that, yeah, it's, you get confused. And you can't remember shit. You can't concentrate. And it's, and it's kind of a mess. Left too long, a diabetic can pass out. I guess ultimately left too long, they will pass out. And after they pass out, and if they don't have any help, they have about eight hours before they're dead. Which sounds like a pretty long time, and it usually is for people who have people that love them and are around them. But um, it's not that long. You pass out, you go into a diabetic coma, and you can be dead pretty quick. Um, So what you as a normal person needs to know about that is that if your diabetic friend or loved one is incapable of consuming food, which happens far before passing out. They get so disoriented um, that they're just unable to function like a normal human being. You'll see them awake, though generally their eyes will be big, glassy, goofy. They're all fucked up. They look like they're really stoned. They have to have sugar. And your best go-to is always a liquid because they don't have to chew it. Um, the sugar starts to be absorbed the moment it touches the tongue, down the esophagus, into the stomach. Like, the sugar starts to get into the system right away. The problem with food is that it has to go down your guts, get broken up, and make its way to the small intestine before the sugar starts to make it to the system. Now, the simpler the sugar, the faster that happens. So, things like fruit, that happens pretty quick, but sometimes... Not quick enough. Usually not quick enough. So, juice is always a great one. Gatorade is dope. Um, and if they go, if they're wonky and they can't swallow um, a thing like uh, icing sugar is great because it's just pure sugar. And they'll just, like I say, they'll start absorbing it on their tongue, their gums, their cheeks. It'll start to happen. Um, they don't necessarily have to swallow it all. And because it's, it'll start to dissolve pretty quick, they're not going to aspirate it, generally. They can, of course. 
But, again, that that's pretty far out. The likelihood that you're ever going to have to fucking worry about icing sugar in a diabetic's mouth, unless you've married a diabetic, is really, really low. But I need to say this before anything, is that if you're around a diabetic who is incapable of feeding themselves, the first thing you do is not get juice. It's to phone 911. Always, always, always. And I know it sounds simple and obvious, but it might not be, especially in the moment. Because it's scary. It's fucked up. My dad's a diabetic, and he goes low all the time. And as a child... He went low all the time and it was terrifying because he didn't feel the onset of a low blood sugar. That's one of the um, effects of a low blood sugar on the body. Long-term effects is that you lose your ability to sense a low blood sugar, Mm -hmm. which is very scary because I can feel it coming from a long way away. Most people can feel it coming. Especially well enough to be able to be in a position to test their blood sugar. Be like, fuck, uh-oh, time for juice or whatever, candy. Yeah, so um, call 911. Just call 911. That's just, it's always your best course of action. Now, to play with that meme that I had mentioned previously was, uh, the joke is, do you need your insulin? So, as we've learned, class, that more insulin will lower your blood sugar further Mm -hmm. because it takes the sugar out of your blood. If you give a diabetic insulin who's going through a low blood sugar, you'll probably go to jail. Murderer. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so that's that's why we all laugh at that joke because everybody makes it. Because you don't know. And we don't laugh at it because we think you're stupid. Because why would you know about our disease? I don't know about your disease. But there just seems to be a lot of us. Anyway. So so as I was saying, that that's one of the long-term effects of a low blood sugar. Um, there are studies out there that say that there are long-term... There's long-term implications to organs and stuff like that. But it, I couldn't find anything concrete. Um, that definitively says that chronic low blood sugars causes X, Y, Z. I would imagine over a long period of time in many episodes, it'll fuck with your brain. That just sounds science-y, right? But I got nothing conclusive to prove that. Now, the ugly... Oh, it's a funny choice of words that I just used there. Because I was, I was going to say the ugly one is the high blood sugar. And I say that because of my own experiences. I've been a diabetic since I was 12 years old. I'm 42 now, so I've had it for a long time. And I've gone, I've had the highs and I've had the lows. A high blood sugar um, has a lot more, it causes a lot more damage to your body, which you won't see right away. That's why people generally are knowledgeable about a low blood sugar because someone can fucking die or they'll pass out or whatever. Um, That's something that happens. But long-term high blood sugars or the ups and downs from a uh, 
regular blood sugar to a high and then back down and whatever, has major issues to blood vessels, neuropathy, like I was mentioning with the title of the episode. Glucose molecules are huge. So what happens is when you get a high blood sugar, these glucose molecules, because they're in the blood, will accumulate at the end of vessels, and over time, they will rupture those vessels. And the vessels will bleed, and to the point where they're damaged enough that nerves start losing um, their supply of uh, oxygen, and then the, then those nerves start to die off. And um, that does affect all of the vessels in the body. It's not um, just the feet, like I had mentioned. Um, there are some places that tend to happen earlier than others. The eyes, the kidneys, the extremities. Those are three that are very common. For a long time, I have been peeing protein out of my body, microalbumin, which is essentially my kidneys. And that's caused by um, prolonged or variability in your blood sugar. And uh, so that was the first thing that happened. And it's been a crazy long time, crazy long time. Decades, probably. Probably just probably 15, maybe longer. Anyway. Does that years. manifest in some way when you're... Yeah. Your piss smells funny. Define funny. Proteiny. It's hard. Okay. It's like kind of meaty. All right. And if you piss directly into the water, it'll foam. A lot of foam is okay. not good. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Especially chronically. Like you can eat... Or drink some things that will produce that like, Get the fuck out of me, and it's not good for you. Yeah. But prolonged stuff like that is uh, concerning. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Feet, eyes, yeah. And then, but it, like I say, it'll affect everywhere. And there's other places in the body, like the stomach. There's a thing called gastroparesis, which is where the nerves at the bottom of your stomach, as it goes into your lower intestine... Those things fucking die, which means that it doesn't know to open and close that sphincter down there, and undigested food makes its way into your lower intestine, and that's not what the lower intestine's built for. It doesn't want that. So it is a digestive gong show for a multi-real bad gas, real bad diarrhea, and just absorption issues, as you could imagine. The heart's a big one. There's lots of studies going on currently about the effects of diabetes and your heart. I've talked about how there, the variability, again, um, the ups and downs of a blood sugar, um, causes a lot of damage. And it seems to be the community, I don't know what else to call it, is starting to focus more on that metric than previous metrics. There used to be, or there is currently, uh, a thing called the A1C. And the A1C is a measure of your blood sugar, ultimately, as an average of the last three months. 
And based on that number, your endocrinologist, who is a doctor that specializes in hormones, will tell you if you're a good diabetic or a bad one. And when I explain it in that simple terms, it sounds fucking stupid. One number to determine if a very complex disease is being managed properly or not. But that's all we have, really. And it's definitely all we used to it's definitely all we used to have. But now they do now there are other measurements. And like I said, it's the variability thing. So the higher your variability, um, the more damage that they're seeing. Specifically, uh, a paper that I was given to read uh, 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 is damage to the heart. About it, uh, ultimately, the, the ability for the heart tissue to remove uh, free radicals from itself, which is devastating uh, to the heart over a prolonged period of time. And there's even debate that any sort of issues with a blood sugar causes damage to the heart. So, but, again, I don't have enough information to be definitive about that. But, damage. All damage, all the time. That is diabetes. So my story with diabetes is, I, again, was diagnosed when I was 12. What a horrible time to get diagnosed. I'm not playing the poor me fiddle, play me a fiddle sob story. But it was a really shitty time, just as puberty's starting, starting junior high, claiming some independence from your parents, and getting slapped in the mouth, or the pancreas, <laughs> with this fucking disease. My symptoms started right after I had the flu. I had a real bad flu, and I came out of it, and I just, I couldn't stop drinking fucking orange juice. It was just... I had, I like, I couldn't stop. And when you have a high blood sugar, you are crazy thirsty. You are just so dehydrated. So I quenched that thirst with orange juice, which, as again, we've learned, makes your blood sugar go up. So it, it was rough. It's just up and up and up and up and up and up. And I had, I had mentioned that my father was a diabetic, so my mom was like, Okay, that's a little fucked up. Uh, and you, diabetics smell. When they have a high, de- um, a high blood sugar, they smell. Like acetone, sh- very sugary. So I stunk. My body odor smelled. I'm 12, I don't know what the fuck body odor is, but I smell. It, my breath smells. So my mom was like, oh boy, let's go. So I went and got tested. And then on April 1st, I was told I had diabetes. What a joke. And I... It was it was weird for me because my dad had it. So I've been around it forever. Like I wasn't freaked out about the needles. I'd seen him taking needles every day, all day long. And so it was... That wasn't a big deal. And certainly I had no idea what the deal was with the disease and what it was going to be like but but what they do and I don't know if they do it with adults but they definitely did it with kids and I don't know if they still do it now but I imagine they do is that they send you to hospital for a week to get diabetes boot camp and they they put you in a ward with a bunch of other diabetic kids and like here we go here you go you little freaks orange juice and digestive cookies keep you alive 
I can still taste the digestive cookies. I fucking hate them. Because of that. Anyway, the experience <clears throat> was um, like immediately terrifying and terrible and shitty. But going to the hospital was actually a really wonderful experience. And I was thinking about it, and that's the benefit, of, I guess, of the last podcast getting fucked up, is that it allowed me to, to think about things a little bit more. But I was thinking about the time in the hospital and, pro- and some of the long-term ramifications that took place because of the positive experience that I had there. The whole time I've had this disease, there are some things I just never did. And a big one was I never drank regular pop. Ever. And it sounds rather simple, but apparently it's not. Loads of diabetics drink regular pop. Which I just cannot fathom, but I just never, ever did. And I think, I think it's because of the positive experience I had at the hospital, is they they trained you. It was literally boot camp. This is what you do. This is what you not do. And it was fun. We, there were five or six of us or whatever. We had the run of the hospital. We played hide-and-go-seek in places we shouldn't. It was, it was a really very good time. Shared experience uh, with people. So there are some things that I learned that I think I carried through, and a lot of people didn't. But after that positive experience, I didn't have another positive experience with diabetes for, well, probably until this year. I resented the disease. I didn't resent or take it out on my father or my mom. I was mad at the disease. And I rebelled against the disease. I fought against the disease. I hated it. I always took my insulin, but I didn't always test my blood sugar. I ate what I wanted. I didn't often give a shit. And a contributor to that was the fact that I was a child and I got this disease and my mom felt awful. My mom still carries guilt for that today. And she did what probably any parent would do is that they just she just hovered and did her best to um, make sure I didn't die. But what that translated to was just overbearing. Pushed too hard. And I just pushed back. That's why I said getting it at 12 was, a, was really shitty. If I had had to have this disease, I wish I would have got it when I was 6. Because then it, my life would have been very different had it happened earlier. Maybe not later, but certainly earlier. But anyway, so that, that established a very um, angry relationship with the disease for um, forever. Um, like I said, I didn't test. So my blood sugars were always really very high. And back back then, like a, it, was, it was a joke. It was funny. It was like, high, how high is my blood sugar now? Your blood sugar is supposed to be between 4 and 6. That's what you normal people usually have it. Generally, six is pretty high for you. The uh, an old rhyme that um, isn't necessarily true, but it just gives you context: is four and eight feeling great. 
if you're between four and eight. It's a good spot for a diabetic. But there were times that I would test and I'd be 26, 29, wow. 32. Um, 32? Yeah. Holy shit. And that's someone who's taking insulin. Like, I'm managing, quote unquote, this disease. And it was just, it was funny. Because I was a teenager and I didn't give a shit. I didn't think I was going to die. I didn't think anything could was going to happen. And if it did, it wasn't going to happen now. That's a problem for future Adam. And I remember thinking that way. Knowing that what I'm doing is fucked up. And that I'm going to pay for it. And it, and it got worse the older I got uh, until a certain point. But like, when I turned 16... I was diagnosed with celiac disease as well. I was part of a study at the Children's Hospital to find out if there's a correlation between juvenile diabetes and celiac disease. Turns out there is. <laughs> and quite a uh, uh, prevalent... Uh, bums me out. Uh, uh, yeah, so I got that disease. So at that time, when I got it, I fucking broke down lost my mind diabetes was hard enough as it was it was very restrictive my parents were trying to keep me very restrictive and I was pushing and it was and then I got celiac disease and that back then was awful there was no food that you could eat mostly because nobody knew what food you couldn't eat mm -hmm. So I snapped mentally and I pushed very hard. I ignored celiac disease. I didn't have it. I didn't believe them. And then the two just, those two diseases just teamed up against me. And I used that language um, specifically because it felt like that. Because I had these two diseases and I was told like the long-term issues with with celiac disease is like stomach cancer and just like gnarly shit. And then diabetes, well, that's going to fucking kill you too. So, okay, I'm, I am just going to die. I'm going to get another disease and I'm not going to see 30. I'm just going to get another disease. It's going to be fucking cancer or something and just poof, it'll be over. So I don't care, right? I'm not here for a long time. Here for, I'm not here for... Live hard, live fast, yeah. die young. That's right, man. Whew. Leave a good-looking corpse. So, I just... I didn't care. And, uh, yeah, I didn't care for a real long time. I've had the disease for so long, <laughs> diabetes for so long, that a big part of the challenge um, has been the technological part of it. When my dad first had diabetes, he had a glass syringe that they had to wash and um, testing his blood sugar. He had like to sacrifice a chicken and fucking, right? Like just crazy archaic shit. Compared to today. Absolutely compared to today. So when I started, I had to have these little sticks that I had to put blood on. I had to wait for however many seconds, wipe it off and then compare it do a color graph on the side of the bottle to determine what my blood sugar is. Now, that was short-lived, but I still had to do it. Then I was introduced to a uh, blood glucose meter. 
which was pretty fancy. It was about the size of a Buick, but it was pretty cool. Uh, it took it took a minute to take my blood sugar. So you do it and you wait and you wait and you wait and it just this little I can still see the LED screen. I can still see the little doodad sort of uh, like the pinwheel or the hourglass sort of ideas. It's thinking, and then it tells you what it is. And it was, it had to be calibrated a lot. And we never did because it was super inconvenient. You were supposed to take it into the hospital to get it calibrated all the time because it's this thing. And of course, there's this huge drift. And if you drift, your numbers are wrong and you're like, it was just a mess. But over time, you know, they, the machines got better. And, but there were definitely some technological challenges. <laughs> Where I am now with it, is uh, from a technological perspective. Three, four years ago, when we were living in BC, I was offered to be part of a pilot to test out the a CGM, is what they're called. And that is a uh, constant glucose monitor. So it's a little doodad that attaches to your body that tests the glucose levels of your interstitial fluid in your body. Not your blood, but your interstitial fluid. Now, that's important because those numbers are different. Uh, But the point of a CGM is not necessarily what the number is. It's about trending data. Is it going up? Is it going down? And over long periods of time, that's when the numbers get useful. But if you were to plug one on now, check the number... That doesn't really mean much of anything. Anyway, so I did that because previously, sorry, I was testing my blood sugar by pricking my finger and using a machine. Painful, tedious, annoying to carry this big fucking machine around all the time. Um, It wasn't the Buick anymore, but it was still a thing I had to carry. And because you had to prick your finger all the time, you ended up only doing it two times a day, sometimes once, three if you're really feeling like a diabetes champion. And then like the world opened up when I got this CGM because it would test your, test the number for the number every five minutes and you could check it anytime you wanted. You could just scan it with uh, a machine which is the same size as a blood glucose monitor. In fact, it was a blood glucose monitor as well. And, and it would tell you what your number was. And it was just, it was mind-boggling. It just, it, it's such a radical change. So anyway, I was part of that pilot project, and it was great. And I, uh, they, the government approved it. It's not like it was new. It's not like I was some sort of pioneer in it. But the, the government hadn't approved it yet and they needed to see if it was worth doing. And the answer was obviously yes, before we even started, but, you know, red tape. So we did it, and it was bonkers, and I couldn't live without it. So what that made me do was it made me reevaluate the possibilities of controlling this disease. So I started to get my shit together. And um, I did that um, 
and I, I fell into uh, the thing that really helped, and that was the keto diet. I started the keto diet because oh, I'm overweight, and I wanted a quick, easy fix to lose weight. And eating bacon and losing weight sounded pretty good to me. So on I went. And one of the benefits was is that you're not eating carbohydrates, so your blood sugar is not going up. So you don't have to take a bunch of insulin, and it just, holy shit. My blood sugar went from, because I spent a lot of my life with it above 10. Like, that's where I lived, was above 10. And then I started the keto diet, and now it was 6, 7. It was within the parameters of the rhyme. 4 and 8 feeling great. So, holy shit. It's doable. It's manageable. I couldn't believe it. So, the keto diet is not easy to maintain. Especially when you have other things that are making your diet very restrictive. Going on to a diet, uh, like a, uh, a food diet, is rough. Just another thing in your fucking way. So I'd go off it. And my bunch of would go all wacky. Then I'd go back on it and we were back to normal. Yeah, that's when it, it started to, to be great. Because I could start to see that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And at that time, we had just had our daughter. So I was really interested in living. Because I had made it past that point that the teenager had assumed I was going to die. And I was in relatively good health. So it wasn't going to take me. So, okay. Maybe we should do something about it. And ten years before that, I had decided to pay attention to the celiac diet. Um, It was just... Enough was enough. I, I, I knew that enough was enough. As I mentioned before, I'd always known that I was ignoring it and I'd always known it was a bad idea. But I just did it anyway and that was for both diseases. Anyway, so I uh, started paying attention to the celiac diet and that was very positive. Um, Mostly because the energy that I would spend on the feelings of guilt of eating a pizza or a hamburger, were then gone. Because I felt like shit. And I don't mean physically. I meant emotionally. I felt like shit. Because I was eating so much gluten that I was asymptomatic. Or I was symptomatic and it was just par for the course. I didn't know that I was fucking up my body or that I was a mess. So, so I'm taking care taking care of my blood sugar. Do we go into the eyeball story? (laughs) The eye story is the beginning of profound changes. When you were talking about there are obvious symptoms Mm -hmm. when your blood sugar is low, they're they're unmistakable and they're progressive. Mm -hmm. What about when your blood sugar is high? Right. Um, So they're yeah, there are definitely symptoms. Um, very thirsty. Piss all the time. You smell funny. Um, you're very hungry, which is fucked. 
but you're very hungry usually or often. Um, again, confusion, disorientation, um, irritable, but because you feel like shit. Now, talking to diabetics, no one really feels it the exact same way. The way it manifests in me, because I visualize the things that are happening inside of my body. Mm. And I see sugar building up in my joints. And my joints ache. Ankles, knees especially. Um, my chest feels tight, or my shoulders, my shoulders and my my uh, traps and the muscles feel really tight when my blood sugar is really high. Um, I get, uh, it's not, it's an olfactory response, but it's not actually a smell, but like something's happening mm-hmm. in, uh, in there. The, the benefit to uh, someone who's not a diabetic is that when they have a high blood sugar, they're um, generally 100% with it. And they are capable of managing it as long as it doesn't go too wild. Because it, a, a prolonged high blood sugar causes a thing called DKA and it's uh, ketones in the blood. And ketones are an acid um, that is built up from too much sugar in the blood, ultimately. And it's essentially a poison and it can kill you and kills diabetics hypoglycemia, you'll pass out and you'll die. Um, But hyper can kill you as well. And it's much more painful because you're lucid generally the whole time. You can can usually get yourself out of it or get your stupid ass to a hospital and then they can uh, do it. And you you mentioned last time that in your teens you were basically rebelling against the disease... You were, and I mean, probably rebelling against your parents' overbearingness, trying to help you with the disease, Mm -hmm. wasn't helpful either. And then you also mentioned that in your 20s and your 30s, you were going through this constant cycle of behaving yourself for a while, binge, behave yourself for a while, binge, and this cycle would repeat itself over and over and over again. Until, yeah, that's yeah. So tragic happened, right? So, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I suppose I did jump ahead and made it sound like I was a goddamn mess the whole time, but it wasn't. And unfortunately, it was driven quite a bit by guilt. I don't I say unfortunately just because of the weight of guilt on my mind and on really my whole life. So it was the guilt that ended the binges? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it made me get my shit together. Right. Is I like I said, I knew I was doing wrong the whole time and it just got to the point where like you got to fix this. Mm-hmm. You're a mess. You need to fix this. And it just I did until I didn't. Mm-hmm. And then you just you fall off. One Crazy thing that a lot of people, I guess, don't think about it. And I say that because I didn't think about it until, you know, rather recently. Is that, I don't want to say almost all diabetics, but I'm going to say almost not all diabetics, have a 
clinical definitive eating disorder because their whole life revolves around food. Their relationship with food is so fucked up. I'm not any different than anybody else. When you're emotional, you eat quite often. Lots of people do. So I did. And the burden of taking care of the disease and then real life stuff happening is then would cause you to, or me, you, cause me to uh, binge and fall off the wagon and go back to whatever. So, <clears throat> on the keto diet, blood sugar's going great, feeling good, looking good. All right, here we go. My life is changing. And then I fell off. Blood sugars go all wacky, go back to fucking a shitstorm, not, like, not doing well with it. And the guilt is now a little bit higher because I've seen, I've seen that it's possible. Outside of the stupid shit that they teach you how to manage this disease. Because they teach you how to count how to they teach you how to count carbohydrates, proteins, and all these things. And everything has got to be a formula. But a really basic formula. And it was just it 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 came across even as a twelve year old really pedantic. And it just drove me crazy. And that bias lasted well, fuck forever. So anyway, and then I go back. Then I would go back onto the keto diet, and then off, on, off. Probably three, probably three times in the span of two years, three years. So one time in particular, uh, my because I tend to go on the keto diet when the fucking wheels have fallen off, and it's a mess, and I know it's a mess. And I'm living in blood sugars of like 15, 17. And I'm staying there. And I just... Not only do I know, intellectually I know it's bad, but I feel like garbage. High blood sugars do not feel good. Mm -hmm. They feel awful. Mm -hmm. So, I'm living in this space and I go back to the keto diet. Blood sugars don't like... It's not like a progressive lowering of a blood sugar, it's like right away. So my blood sugars were 15, 17, whatever, down to five within a meal, right? Like it's like super quick. That might be a little exaggerated, but certainly within a day, like the next day, you're now down here. <clears throat> so now, okay, now I'm, I've got good blood sugar control again. And I wake up one day, and in my left eye, there's some floaties. Now, that's fucking weird. Slept on my face funny or something. I don't know. And I leave it for a day or two, and they're still there, and they're still there, and they're still there. So I decide to go to an optometrist. I sit down, and uh, I take all the pictures. The optometrist brings me into the office. And this is just a regular old optometrist who wants to sell me glasses. Um, so their specialty is nearsighted and farsighted. Right, so quite limited. But anyway, she sat me down and was like, there's a, there's a real problem in your left eye. There's quite a bit of bleeding in there. Sorry, an important part is, is a year before, so a diabetic is supposed to go to uh, an optometrist annually 
to get an eye test. Because as I had said before, the eyes are one of the first things to go. And also with the eye, they call it the window to the rest of your body when it comes to blood vessels. Because they're the only fucking ones you can see are the ones that are on your retina. And if the ones on your retina are bad, chances are they're fucking bad everywhere. Because it doesn't pick and choose, right? It's like you can't lose uh, weight in just your belly. It's weight everywhere. So the saying shouldn't be the eyes are the windows to the soul. The eyes are the windows to your... Blood vessels. Your circulatory system. Exactly. Exactly. It's not as catchy. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue. (laughs) No. So she's like, you've got a real problem in your fucking left eye. Blood in your eye? Yeah. So bad shit in my left eye. You're bleeding. You're bleeding into your eye. So as I mentioned before, that what happens with a prolonged high blood sugar, and now they're talking about with the variability, which uh, exacerbates the problem, is that the glucose goes into the end of the vessels, and eventually it ruptures them, and they bleed. Now, in your eye, um, blood, blood between <laughs> your retina and the outside world's bad news. Obfuscates light, and then you can't see properly. Hence the floaties. The floaties were blood. So she's like, you have to go see an ophthalmologist, like, right away. And I was like, okay, well. So, right, the story I was telling before, sorry, is that you got to go annually. And less, I I think less, maybe about a year before that, I went to an optometrist who looked at my eyes and he said, they're phenomenal. Your eyes are in great fucking shape. There are no problems at all. And you're thinking, yay. Awesome. And every time before that, phenomenal shape. Mm -hmm. Great. So I go see this woman, and it was less than a year, because it fucked me right up. And she's like, there's a real problem. So immediately, I'm right upset, because I just went in there thinking that, you know, I had some snot in my eye or something, right? And she tells me a catastrophic diabetes problem. Were you thinking maybe she didn't know what she was talking about? or Absolutely. Yeah. And also the other one. Right? The the person previous. Like, what the fuck? D- did you miss this? Right. But how could you miss this? Right. Because she said, there's a lot of blood. So she sends me to an ophthalmologist and in I go. And in I go as in the next fucking day. So I go in he takes a look and he just leans back in his chair. He's like, okay, we got a problem and we need to, we need to figure this out. And I was like, okay, okay. So he's like, the, the procedure that we'll do is that we'll do an injection in your eye with a thing called uh, anti-VEGF. Now, VEGF is an acronym that I'm not going to try and say it. But what VEGF is, is it's an enzyme that is released when a blood vessel ruptures. And it happens all over your body, but it is profound in your eye. Because what happens is your blood vessel ruptures, the pressure changes in the blood vessel, obviously. VEGF is released, which promotes vessel growth. Now, let's say two or three or five blood vessels come off that one tendril, And now you've got five. Now you still have a high blood sugar or a variable blood sugar. Now five vessels are filled with sugar and rupture. 
and then it repeats and it repeats and it repeats eventually until your blood your eye is filled with blood and you are blind or all of your vessels are fucking destroyed so they inject a thing called anti-VEGF right into your eyeball they also do a procedure called photocoagulation and photocoagulation is um, like space invaders but for real in your eyeball is they shoot lasers onto all of your vessels to cauterize, not all of your vessels, but problem vessels, to cauterize them to help, essentially, uh, the spread of, of growth of new vessels. It doesn't, necess- it doesn't stop the bleeding. It's to essentially stop, like both of these activities, are to essentially stop the growth of any more. Because the blood's in there, the blood's in there. Eventually they'll clot, is the hope. Well as long as you don't have a clotting problem, of course, uh, they'll clot and that that's the plan. And then your, your eye's really good at flushing out blood or other uh, goop that shouldn't be there. So it'll just reabsorb the blood and then, then you're good to go. So he looked at both of my eyes and he's like, they're fucked. But your left eye is really bad and we got to do something about it. Those the procedures that I was talking about. I was like, okay, so when when do we schedule it? And he's like, you we have to go tomorrow. And I hadn't quite until that point grasped the severity, not only of the problem in itself, but that this is a really really big deal. That it's like, okay, you got photos in your eyes. Okay, it's just a regular old. Uh, way you deal in the healthcare system that you'll come back in a few weeks, months and deal with it. No, it was the next day. It was an emergency. So anyway, I went in, had the procedure, um, was not enjoyable. He said that my right eye was bad, but not as bad. And we don't need to do the procedure on that eye yet. So anyway, I heal, come back six weeks. Uh, I come back a number of times and then at the six week point, he he looks at it and he's like, okay, the left eye looks, you know, good. That's relative, but it looks good. And your right eye, okay, it's bad, but it's not so bad that we need to do anything about it yet. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's not great, but it's not... It's stable. It's stable. Yeah. That's a good word to use. So I was like, awesome. And at that point, my wife and I had decided that we were going to move back to Calgary. So I got him to suggest me an ophthalmologist and he gave me a couple names. I'm like, all right, okay, when I get there, I'm going to give him a call so we can just keep this going because it was, it's a terrifying experience. Um, not really knowing uh, what it all means. Um, you just, it's your eyes and that's never a good time. So anyway, uh, we moved back to Calgary and two weeks later, the lockdown happens. Um, so there were no ophthalmologists to phone. And then just, um, as everybody dealt with, just a fucking gong show for two years. So for about a year, like I couldn't do anything, didn't do anything. And it was a real stressful time, of course, with everybody. But what I always did with, um, with the stress is that I, I ate. I ate my problems away and I were, was drinking. Not uh, to excess, but I was drinking and the things that I was drinking would raise my blood sugar. 
And alcohol is just not good for your blood sugar anyway. So my blood sugars were all out of whack again. And you're sitting there thinking, going, Jesus Christ, Adam. Like, you fucking had a problem with your eye. Why wouldn't you keep it together? Well, I didn't. There's not really much else there, but I, I didn't. The invincibility of a teenager, I guess, maybe was still there. Or just the overwhelming stress of the pandemic and all the things that I had to uh, deal with during that time was just... Or maybe even, well, I had a problem with my eye and they fixed it and now I'm good. Sure. So again, like every other fucking time, we're talking October 2020. Yeah, October 2020. My blood sugars are bad. Bad, bad, bad. I gained a shitload of weight. I felt like garbage and I was like, okay, enough is enough. Get it together. On to the keto diet. And the next day, my blood sugars were wham, down to five, six, whatever. Really great. And then, it would have been November. And then about a week after that, or so, give or take, there were some floaties in my right eye. And I was like, ooh, fuck. Okay. Maybe I just slept in my eye weird. Or maybe there's just some gunk in it. I'll give it some time. I'll give it some time, please. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I uh, did give it some time until I couldn't anymore. And I went to an optometrist by my house. That poor woman. Again, optometrists don't know fuck all. They know... Just because they read it in a textbook, they don't go over it. It's not part of their training. They don't need to know about diabetes and the damage to the eye. They can identify it and pass you along. So this poor woman looks into my eye and she steps back and I can see it in her face. It wasn't quite terror because she was she's a professional. But she was not pleased. She was... She was, yeah, she was a little scared. Anyway, so she says to me that you have four retinal hemorrhages in your right eye. And at that point, that's Greek to me. Like, that's bad. Um, But I didn't know how bad. It sounded really bad. But I don't really know. But I'm upset. Again, like, here we go again. And she's like, you have to go see an ophthalmologist. And again, I was like, okay. She's like, today, you have to go now. I'm going to phone the hospital to make sure that they can take you. And I'm sitting in the chair when she's making that call. And I can just feel it happen in my brain, in my body, going, uh-oh. I'm going to try really hard not to cry because it was Fucked. So she comes back and she says, okay, he can't take you today because it was like 3 o'clock or whatever. He's like, have him in my office at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. So in I go. Take pictures and they do all their things and he looks at it and he's like, okay, it's bad. I gave him my history, left eye, bad, bad, blah, blah, blah. Right eye, Nothing. He looks at it, he's saying, like, it's bad, but it's not, like, we're not, I'm not, I'm not freaking out about it. 
he says, in his fucking specialist language, which is <laughs> not very communicative. But anyway, <laughs> he wasn't too worried about it. And he gave me a shot in both eyes. Because the left one was a little wonky. Like, it's, there was a little bit of blood. So he gave me a shot in each eye. No photocoagulation, because that's something that happens at the hospital. Anyway, so boop, boop, in go my eyes. And he's like, come back in two weeks. So I go home, and two days later, it's noticeably worse. And I end up going to emerge uh, to see the ophthalmologist there, because there's an ophthalmologist um, at one hospital uh, emergency. They looked at my eye, and they're like, you have to come back to the clinic tomorrow morning to see um, the man. So I came back the next morning, and it happened to be the same guy. And he looked at it, and he's like, yeah, that's worse. Um, but again, I'm not like I'm not freaking out about it. But then he gave me another shot. Now the shots are supposed to last six weeks, like that's their their lifetime. Sometimes diabetics get them monthly, sometimes every two, six, annually. Um, but he gave me two in two weeks, which was aggressive, admittedly. Uh, he had said that it was aggressive, um, but. Let's just see how it goes. He sent me on my merry way. He's like, if anything changes, like if a curtain starts to show up over your eye, like just an obfuscation, uh, an obvious one, you call our office and uh, we'll get you in and we'll, we'll take a look at it. So that did happen. <laughs> so my vision started like to really go. It, it progressed from... Uh, floaties to blur uh, in parts of the vision to blur in all of the vision. And it's starting to get dark. So I go and he's like, okay, okay. (laughs) This is considerably worse than it was two weeks before. So what it turns out that was happening to me is that I was suffering from a paradoxical issue where a diabetic goes from very, very poor control to very strict control in a short period of time, a thing that is anecdotally called early worsening. And what it is, it's, it manifests in a way where diabetic retinopathy, which is the bleeding of the eye, progresses very rapidly and very aggressively. So again, I'll say that. The better control I had, the worse that it was getting. Which, as you can imagine, is a pretty horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. Get your shit together, gonna go blind. Don't get your shit together, you'll go blind later. But you're gonna go blind. Mm. I'm like, oh, great. Oh, great. And it was terrifying because I was doing everything I could at that point. Because now it has been six eight weeks with the problem and it was scary and it wasn't going away like I say it was getting worse so he uh, more shots and he started to explain to me 
that we're just going to be aggressive. We're going to, like, every three weeks to a month, I'm going to give you these shots in your eye to try and get it to stop bleeding. And uh, so, continued to go back, uh, go back, and I ended up having an, uh, an angiogram in my eye, which then showed that I have, like, no blood flow on my peripheral vision, and some in the center, but very, very poor. And once that circulation is gone, it can't come back. It's toast. It's unrecoverable. So he then showed me pictures. I got super sciencey pictures of my eye. And he showed me that there is a, a significant scar on my retina. And what it's doing is as it grows, it's pulling on my retina. Because as vessels are, are bursting, it's creating this scar. And it's just it's just pulling the retina tight. Now, if my, that scar was in another location on the eye, they would have done surgery and removed the scar. The problem is, is that because I had such poor circulation and so few um, active... Uh, or functioning vessels that they had to be careful. And the scar was sitting on a large bundle of functioning vessels. And he's like, the risk is so high that if I try and remove this scar, that I could rupture those vessels. And if they rupture, you'll be blind. It'll be over. Right. And he was talking about between a 30 and a 50% chance that I will be blind during the procedure. So it was like, we're going to do everything we can to not touch this fucking thing. So I'm coming back all the time for shots and he's looking and he's like, okay, okay. And he's never saying it's getting better. He's not even saying it's stabilizing. So I go one, one time and he's like, okay, okay. I think it's slowing down. I think we're okay. I think we're going to avoid surgery. I think we're over the hump. Yay. Yay. I come back a month later. I sit down and I'm just stoked. Like, okay, I'm going in the right direction. And this is just par for the course now. And it wasn't every month. I was going every two weeks. Sorry, I was going frequently. Anyhow, I went back and he looks in my eyes and he leans back in his chair like the optometrist did. He's like, how do you think you're doing? I said, Doctor, I think I'm doing great. I, I, I feel like it's getting better. And he's like, it has gotten significantly worse since the last time you were here. It's now at a point where the risk is higher to leave it than it is to do the surgery. Again, there's a 50% chance that I will be permanently blind during this procedure. It's now lower risk than leaving it. And I was just blown away. I was terrified. Because it was the last thing I expected. The last time I was there, I was going in the right direction. Again, I don't know, just naively or ignorantly, I was just like, okay, when do we got to do it? tomorrow we have to do this right away so I think it ended up being the next day so I was prepped for surgery 
<laughs> Showed up at the hospital, did the song and dance. Because <laughs> the fucking hospital trip was... The experience was terrible because because I was in emergency surgery, I wasn't scheduled. So I had to show up and he could fit me in when he could fit me in. And it was an all-day affair. How long did you have to wait? It was 12 hours or so that I was in the hospital waiting to see him. Jeez. Because he was busy. He's a busy guy. Because he's the man. Right. Apparently. Is he like the resident ophthalmologist at the hospital? No, no, there's no, he's not. Okay. They rotate between right. a few of them. Got it. So he finally sees me. I go in for surgery. I'm waiting outside the operating room. And he comes by and he's like, I really don't want to do this. Oh, good. <laughs> That's great. And he's like, I had a consult with two other ophthalmologists in my office. And they both said that they're glad that they're not doing it. This is really gnarly, man. This is really bad. And I'm... Yeah, I'm... Anyway. I'm, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but here we are. So, I go in for... I go in. And uh, I get my eye frozen. I'm going to spare Carl from having to hear the story a second time. Because it's <laughs> fucking heebie-jeebie. The freezing of the eye is supposed to freeze the optic nerve. Or does freeze the optic nerve and the muscles around the eye so you can't move your eye. Because um, if you move your eye and he's inside of your eye, that's bad. You had two options also with the surgery. Either you could be uh, uh, put under general or you could be awake. And the benefits of being awake is that um, there's far less risk. Just general is just, I don't like general. I don't like the idea of going to sleep and maybe not get waking up. I had enough bad luck over the last few months. I was like, fuck it. No way. So I stayed awake. Freezer optic nerve. I can't move my eye. Um, it's supposed to make it so you can't see. Like It's supposed to blind you. Um, it did not. I could see everything. Which means I saw the needles coming into my eye. I saw the um, tools in my eye, peeling the scar, I saw the vacuum suck out the sclera in my eye. So sclera is the goop that's inside of your eyeball. I saw him suck all of it out with a vacuum. It was fucking weird. So again, like, saw him work the surgery. So the purpose of the surgery was to lift the scar tissue up and lay the retina down. Because I had... Technically, at that point, a retinal detachment. That got all done. The procedure was supposed to take 45 minutes. I was in there for an hour and a half. And you can't move. You can't even talk. You can't scratch your nuts. You can't do anything. Because any slight movement could be catastrophic. Especially with such a high-risk thing. And the same thing with going to sleep. Um, he said that some people twitch. When they're under general. Um, and we can't have that. So it's better if you stay awake. So, anyway. People have said, like, I can't believe you stayed awake. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it was a terrifying, horrible, crazy experience having that done. So, now it's all done. And he was 
he was giddy. He was so excited because I wasn't blind. He didn't blind me during the procedure. And he was so proud. I was like, congratulations, doctor. And you could just see that he was like, fuck yeah, congratulations. That was scary. And I asked him as he they were cleaning up and they're waiting for an orderly to come get me. And I'm like, is this going to be one that you talk to your, your, your colleagues about? He's like, oh yeah, this is like top three for sure. I was like... That's not good. <laughs> That's not a list you want to be on. <laughs> yeah. So, so then the real hard part started, uh, which was the healing process. And so what they do is when they suck all the sclera out of your eye and do the work, then they, they fill up your eyeball with gas. The gas is over... Over time, as your body creates more um, more goop, it will be absorbed into your body. But the whole point is for it to sit over top of the scar to let it heal. Now, because it's on your retina, the retina's at the back of your eye, you have to be face down. You have to be face down 24 hours a day, which means I had a fucking stupid chair I had to rent to sit in my living room with my face face down. I had to eat facing down. I had to shit facing down. And worst of all, I had to sleep facing down. On a massage table, when you put your head in a, in a thing, we had to stick it in between the box spring and the mattress. And I had to stick my head over it, and my arms had to hang over the side of the bed. Because I couldn't, well, I, I could sit him on, on beside me, but it was just, it was super uncomfortable. I had to wear this big plastic thing over my eye so I didn't put any pressure on the eyeball. It was fucking horrible. I spent two weeks face down. And I, you, you can't use your eye. So I couldn't watch TV, look at my phone, look at a computer, read a book. I couldn't do anything think and the whole time I'm thinking about how I might not I'm not blind yet but I don't know if this eye's ever going to get better and more so is that this procedure wasn't to stop what was happening it was to fix the problem that had already been caused it is very possible that my eye continues to get worse. So I spend two weeks just scared, hopeless. I feel like an invalid. I can't do anything. The only time I get to lift my head up is when I take eye drops. And there's a lot of eye drops. <laughs> I think there were six eye drops four times a day or some shit. Like, just... It was crazy. It was like a fucking fire hose in my eye constantly. And during those two weeks, so there's silver lining to it, is that during those two weeks, I came to some interesting or important realizations that I need to change. Like it needs to change. Because the things that you're thinking about when you're face down and you don't know if you're going to be blind in your right eye, and knowing that your left eye is fucked up too, your backup is not good. 
is that you like my daughter was three years old. I might not watch her grow up. I may not see my wife anymore. It was horrible. And it was scary for a long time. Outside of those two weeks. But during that time I realized I gotta get my shit together. And there's no more. Now that I know what this, this, this phenomenon is. I don't know if you call it a phenomenon because fucking everybody, all the ophthalmologists know about it. Where bad control to good control causes this problem. And it's, evident that I am like I had it happen to both eyes so it'll happen again anyway I needed to get my shit together so I decided to go for an insulin pump I had thought about an insulin pump for a long time and always been really trepidatious about taking the step because I it's scary to relinquish the control that you have over a disease that you you do stuff constantly to make sure you don't die. To then relinquish that responsibility to a robot. And I had these notions that I'm going to have to live a life of a lot of structure and rigidity. Which was what I rebelled against initially. Was the fact that I have to live my life in this fucking box. But I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta change. Because what I'm doing isn't working. And I need to, to change it. So I reached out, I reached out to my doctor and he got me in contact with the diabetes, the diabetic clinic. And I got assigned to a nurse, hi Jody, who is an incredible woman who helped me so much. She helped me see some things about this disease that I had never seen before. And the most profound one. Was the rebellion of the disease. Is that I rebelled against this disease. I fought against this disease. I rebelled against something that cannot be rebelled against. I'd spent 30 years fighting against something that can't be fought against. It is a fact. I have diabetes me ignoring it doesn't make diabetes go away, doesn't make my life any better, and in fact, as proven, makes my life a lot fucking worse. And she helped me through the process of getting a pump, getting acclimated to it, and there were some challenges. Now, what an insulin pump is, is a device that connects, that I carry around all the time, that's got a little tube that comes out of it, that's got insulin in it, and it connects into my, into my body, and another part of my body, I've got one of those CGMs, one of those uh, glucose monitors. And the glucose monitor talks to my pump. And so I, it always, it always knows what my blood sugar is. And it autonomously delivers insulin, uh, small amounts of insulin, uh, every five minutes or so. In small little increments to... Um, to maintain my blood sugar. I'm still responsible for uh, delivering insulin after um, uh, when I eat. So I still have to calculate carbohydrates and then take uh, insulin based on that. But I remember saying to her that I was terrified about the rigidity and um, that it's just, it's going to bum me out and I don't know how successful this is going to be, but I, I got to try, I got to do something. 
So it turned out that, like, I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. I like data. I like it. And the pump gave me an astronomical amount of information about um, my blood sugars, the amount of insulin I take, and the time of day that things happen, which allows me to tailor the distribution or the administration of insulin um, differently throughout the day, very specifically. And what it did um, is that I became far more rigid because I could see what happens when I deviate from rigidity. And I didn't like it because it was just right there. Mm-hmm. Debatably, I became obsessive about it, but it wasn't obsessive, really, because um, for the first time ever, what it did, ultimately, is I felt empowered. I felt like I was in control of this fucking disease. I was no longer fighting against it. I just accepted that I have it. That it isn't about winning or losing against it. It just is, and I just have to deal with it. And I have to let go of the energy that I was spending on the guilt and the fear of this disease. That's something that Jody taught me. Made me realize how much energy I was spending. Because when you do something for 30 years, it just you just do it. Mm-hmm. You don't recognize how, how much work it is. And it is a lot of work. This disease is a lot of work. It's constant. So anyway, so now I'm on the pump and I am a model citizen. This thing keeps track of how long you're in range and I'm averaging about 91% in range, which is crazy high. Um, the variability that I was talking about before, which is a, a number to pay attention to um, for long-term damage. Um, anything uh, above three is bad, and I'm averaging right at two, sometimes a little lower, sometimes a little bit higher. And I'm defined as excellent. My management of this disease is excellent. I feel better. Um, like I say I feel more in control I'm not as scared of it how is it how has that affected your overall emotional well-being less of a roller coaster that's an interesting question it's hard to it's hard to answer because it's still so new And there's variables that were fucking with my emotions so much over the last year anyway Mm -hmm. that it's hard to tell what it is. But I can can certainly say that I feel better Mm -hmm. mentally about it. The reason I ask is because, you know, when you're going through that binge fix, binge fix, binge fix cycle, I'm guessing you're in a specific emotional state that's triggering the desire to binge and then you're probably switching to a slightly different emotional state while you're binging 
because you kind of feel a little bit more free and you're fooling yourself into thinking that you're in control. You know, it's like, fuck the disease, I'm going to do what I want. And then the guilt starts to catch up to you. Right. And then you realize, okay, well, you get to a certain level that you realize, okay, maybe it's time to smarten up and get back to, get back to, you know, uh, uh, an even keel again. And then that switches to yet another emotional state, for lack of a better word, or a, a combination of emotions. And then once you're at that state that you need to be at, you feel a little bit of relief and the guilt starts to subside, I'm guessing. So there's that constant roller coaster back and forth, but now you're maintaining stability and predictability. And like you said, with all of that data and the constant awareness of where you're at many times through the day, day after day, week after week, uh, it, it must feel like you're expending a lot less energy on the manic managing the your emotions yeah it's emotions. not as manic yeah i would say it's not as manic right um because you're you're right but it's it's changed it hasn't gone away it's just it's sort of changed because because i watch it constantly mm-hmm. there is the oh, oh okay like it's going too high now it's going too low it's going right. too high like so there's more focus right and the ups and the downs are more frequent, but shorter. They're not days. They're right. minutes. Right. So it's... I've stolen so Peter to pay like Paul. the world's biggest roller coaster. Now you're on like a kid's roller coaster. Yeah. Just go, woo, woo, like, woo. Yeah, it's like rumble strips on the highway. <laughs> 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 yeah. And I don't know what the cost of that is. If there is a cost, um, I... Jody had mentioned concern about it, about just being obsessive about it, because she's seen so many people who are just in it to win it and burn out, and then, then they're back to fucking gong show, <laughs> right? Um, Physiologically, you must feel better. I do. Like your body, yeah. your, your physical being must feel better. It does. Than it ever has. It feels different. It doesn't... Like, it feels better, but there are parts of me that feel worse because I'm starting to feel them more. Like, it's like parts of my body are waking up that have just been... Like, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, there are parts of my body now that are more sore than they've been before. And I don't know if that's just because I'm getting old. It's probably just Maybe it has nothing to do with diabetes. <laughs> it's just lots of things have changed, and it's it's been a year since my eye surgery. It's been about eight months, let's say, for my pump. So it's all pretty new, and I'm not really sure about all of it yet. Um, for what it's worth, it's probably not just the diabetes, because I can tell you that in the last two to three years, I've been experiencing physiological effects in my body that are just driving me insane mm. because I've never experienced them before. And it's like, what is going on here? Right. Oh, now it's gone. Oh, <laughs> nope. It's back. What the hell is going on? You know what I mean? And then <laughs> yeah. it's like, Oh, well, I guess this is 
this is a new thing that I'm going to have to deal with right. till I die. Right. Oh, wait, no, wait, there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right. trust me. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> it's not just, it's probably not just the diabetes. But, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing that, did you ever find that before you actually took this seriously on a steady state basis, that you were actively ignoring your body's feedback were you tr- were there symptoms that you would just ignore as opposed to being laser focused on like you are now because it seems now you're laser focused on what your body is experiencing when you weren't caring from mm-hmm. time to time mm-hmm. were you ignoring those the feedback that your body was giving you yeah i i yeah i probably no i was for sure um in instances like i would recognize that they would happen mm-hmm. and then i would push them away right yeah for sure that would that happened um things like a low blood sugar and a high blood sugar not so much like cuz they're they're um they're significant and you can't ignore them because they just affect you so much. But the the longer term stuff, yeah, I would say probably. Yeah, actually, I would. Um, one of the long term problems with uh, high blood sugar or variable blood sugar is impotency. And I was having I was having wiener problems. But for a long time, I denied the possibility that it could be due to that, due to diabetes. Right. Because I was like, no, wait, man, I'm only 40. Then I go fucking almost blind and I'm like, maybe. And having better control has remediated some of that problem. But again, it's been a pandemic full of stress and that's, stress isn't good for wieners, for sure. Not good for anything. No. Yeah, a lot of it was, like, you recognize it and then just push it away. Big time. Just denial. But always knowing that it's there. Always just, So that's a part of what's happened as well, is that there's no little nitpicking, because when something happens, I I want to action it. Because I know how uh, fragile I am. Because with my eye, after that surgery, my eye is fucked. It's not good. I have no peripheral vision. I don't have... I have almost very limited night vision. Um, I've got a huge blind spot in my eye that goes all the way across my eye. Um, I've got 20-20 vision, but um, outside of central vision, um, shit is blurry and terrible. Um, so, and incidentally, that blind, whatever about your eye isn't functioning, is that a, is that due to what they had to do to you during surgery or the damage that was already done to your eye or a combination of both? Combination of the both as the, the, the loss of peripheral vision Mm -hmm. is because of the photocoagulation. Mm Mm-hmm. That is just what it does, mm-hmm. is that the laser doesn't just stop on the blood vessel, right? right? It causes damage. The blind spot is 
scar tissue is the scar that's in my eye Mm -hmm. that will never go away um and the blurriness who knows i don't know i don't know if it's because of the diabetes or the surgery or both or none Hmm. yeah i don't know but the point is is that now i like I, i recognize these things and and another real incredible thing is 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 that had that shit not happened i wouldn't be here talking about it to really anybody is that i have got a real interest in the disease now i have an interest in learning about it i have an interest in helping other people with it cuz i recognize that i've got 30 years of experience 30 years of experience in anything is a lot and when it comes to a disease that is very scary, um, even for someone who's had it for thirty years, it's I feel very uh, I feel very fulfilled when I get to help somebody, answer somebody's questions, or provide them with um, motivation, or give them shit. I've done that quite a few times with people who are like, "I do this, that, and the other thing." Well, you need to stop doing that. <laughs> Or you're going to end up like me. I do want to say one, one thing that I mentioned that Jody had helped me. I just want to express to the universe, or if she ever happens to listen to this, that I really appreciate her and what she's done and helped me and her concern and her telling, tattling on me. She told my psychologist about some of my horseshit behavior. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. So I think I think that's the story of diabetes for for me. I just want to put in a bit of a plug for my sister. Uh, my sister has diabetes as well, and. Um, I never really learned a lot about her experience with it because I wasn't around. Mm-hmm. She got diabetes when she was, I think, 14. Uh, and I had already left home. I had already joined the military at this point. So her, her, um, I don't want to say transition because it wasn't a transition. It happened <laughs> as suddenly as it did to you. Right. Uh, but it all happened while I was away. So I knew it was happening through, you know, just how you hear from stuff happening at home from your family, but I never knew the details. And um, uh, I think my sister uh, found that uh, very few people knew the details, especially those that never met her until she became a young adult. And so she found a blog on uh, online called beinginvisible.ca, Hosted by a guy who, and and I couldn't even tell you what his issue is, but whatever it is, it's another one of these invisible diseases that people suffer through uh, the effects of it without anybody seeing any physical manifestations of the disease. Uh, You know, just like fibromyalgia or diabetes or any other disease where you're suffering uh, the effects of it, but no one can see to look at you, they would think, what's wrong with you? You don't, you look fine. And, uh, she decided to submit her story, uh, both 
you know, for the benefit of other people uh, that might not understand it fully. Uh, and hers is called, uh, if you go into the blog section of his site, into the area called Your Stories, you'll find a story called Never Surrender. It's a Corey Hart-themed <laughs> but uh yeah. little sisters are for that's right i mean she was a she still is a huge cory hart fan and uh yeah it's uh when i read the story myself i was just like what because i really had no idea uh adam was talking about the gastroparesis and she mentioned that that's something that she has to deal with now too which makes the whole uh having to um counter the effects of uh, the high and low blood sugar that much more difficult because normally when you eat, you know you're going to need insulin very shortly thereafter as your blood sugar starts to go up. And she can't. She can't administer her insulin until the stomach finally does let go uh, and release food into the intestine Um so that the absorption into the blood system can start. So if she wants to like go out after a meal, she has to do some massive preparations because she can't actually administer the insulin until the blood sugar actually starts to rise, which could happen five minutes after the meal or 50 minutes after the meal, depending right. on when the stomach decides to pass the, the food along to the, to the, uh, to the uh, small intestine. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, because I said that uh, when I asked my sister what she thought about the pump, she chose not to do it. But I can't remember what reason she gave for not wanting to do it. Um, but whatever it was, you then mentioned that if you could say anything to her, as a message from somebody who's using it and it's, it's changed their life, you said, "Yeah." So I, I, so if I recall correctly, the your sister's issue with it was like mine or initially was was the relinquishing of the control, uh, which is a big problem. But your sister, because of the gastroparesis, has to do a lot of mathematical Olympics to make sure she's getting enough carbohydrates or the absorption is at the right time and she has to do this math constantly. And um, what triggered in my head was the reminder of how much energy we spend on this disease. And something that the pump does for me as a primary function of the pump which is it keeps track of a lot of those numbers for you automatically just in it. You just have to say that you're having XYZ amount of carbs and it'll say, take this much insulin. And you you can take that much or you don't have to. You can take more or you can take less. It's up to you. But it's all about like getting rid of some of it. And another thing that I had mentioned is that my sister... My little sister, yours was Corey Hart, mine was Silverchair. <laughs> Fucking loser. Is that um, she 
type 1 diabetic, has gastroparesis, but is on the pump and has great deals of success with it. Um, so, again, uh, like I said last time, and it's important to reiterate to you, Carl, is that I'm not in any way diminishing her feelings mm-hmm. about it, but it's... Um, just not the voice. Yeah, it's something to explore and to remember she's not the only one. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of people on this rodeo, so if you were to talk to somebody about getting a pump, you're not the first one with gastroparesis with the challenges who've used it and probably have found success. So, um, yeah, it was just helpful. It's helpful in a lot of ways. It has its challenges too, certainly, but um, it's not fucking panacea. But yeah, longest episode ever. Yeah, it was long. <laughs> I don't think there's anything else. I don't really know how to end it other than than that. Um, thank you for listening to it. I hope that it was interesting. Again, like at the beginning, I said that it's you know the Adam show today, but um, I have to really do thank you for listening because it's a cathartic experience to get it out and talk about it. Yeah, I guess it's good a place as any. And with that, episode seven comes to a close. See you next week. Beep boop boop. See you. Talk box. Talk box. Talk box. Beep boop. <laughs>